So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to interests of others. You can be seated. Well, good morning, Midlands Church. It's good to see some familiar faces. Hold on a second. Good morning, Midlands Church. Oh, things are picking up now. You see the way we're going to be playing today, so it's good. It's great to have you with us uh, this morning. It's been uh, such an encouragement for me as a pastor to just look and see how God is blessed, how you guys have been faithful as a church. And so when Hart reached out to me to, to come and be able to speak this morning, I just wanted to ask you guys a question. Have you guys as a, a church experienced any kind of disunity or division over the last year and a half or so? No? No, of course not, right? <clears throat> Let me just give you some good news or some bad news, depending on how you look at it. You're not alone. Like all churches everywhere, a matter of fact, a lot of pastors are cashing in their chips because they're done. Maybe we can kind of unpack a little bit why that is out of Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 4. So I grew up uh, in North Carolina, and we went to the beach in South Carolina. We always went to North Myrtle. And one of the things that we used to do is we would go down uh, to the pavilion. And I went down to, the, down to the pavilion and was riding the rides. And then all of a sudden, something got in my eye. And I kept trying to flush it, you know, and mom was over there looking at it. And dad was like going, just put some dirt on it, right? Like, you know, and I'm sitting there in my eye and I can't get anything to Ends up that, and I know it's hard to believe that as well made as all the equipment is down there at the pavilion, right? Uh, but like apparently what happened, like a little piece of metal had flecked off of one of the rods and it had gotten stuck in my eye and it got underneath my eyelid. And so whenever you pulled it up, you couldn't see it because it was actually under the eyelid. Anyone know how they get that out? I do. They have a big, long Q-tip, and they roll your eyelid back in a direction it's not meant to go, and then they take a little cotton swab, and they pull that out. That's what they did. Now, the consolation prize was I got to wear an eye patch, which at 10 years old is pretty cool. I tried to talk my dad into get me a parrot, but he wouldn't do it, and so I just walked around. Here's the reality that we understand. When something's in our eye that is not supposed to be there, life gets a little bit blurry. And one of the things that's happened here to the Philippians church is that, and one of the truths that we need to understand is that life gets blurry when my eye is full of eye. See what I did there? When my eye is full of eye, you can write that one down because you can put that on Twitter and that would be awesome. Like all your friends would be like, you are the coolest, right? You can even pretend that you said it. I won't care, right? Life gets blurry. Whenever all of a sudden me, whenever I become the central focus Things get blurry, get blurry in my own life and get blurry in my relationship with you. And that creates issue. And that's what's going on at the church in Philippi. This is actually a thank you letter. You know, like if you've ever gone on a missions trip and people gave you some money and you wrote them back and said, hey, thanks so much. Here's what God did on the trip. I'm super thankful. The difference is, uh, is that Paul's not on a missions trip. He's in a mission imprisonment. So he's in Rome and he's in prison. And they've sent this person from the church. You know, they didn't have... Uh, the ability to just wire funds. So they sent Epaphroditus uh, from the church in Philippi and they send him with a gift. And Paul writes back and goes, hey, thanks. That was awesome. I appreciate the gift. I appreciate the prayers. I appreciate the support. Uh, there's a lot of good things. And it's one of the most positive books you're going to find out of Paul. Matter of fact, some people will call this the epistle of joy. 
because joy appears 16 times, the word joy or rejoice. And so there's a lot of positive things to be said, but there's one thing that's an issue, one thing that he's going to deal with, and we'll look at that today in our passage, and that's that there's some division. And you go, well, how do we know there's division in the church? Because in Philippians chapter 4, he names names, right? There's these two ladies, and he, can you imagine getting to heaven, and you're like, like I'm Utica and Syntyche, and I get to heaven, I'm like, seriously, Paul? You couldn't have just like done Matthew 18 and come to it like you had to, and you put it in the Bible. Like there are people like in, in Columbia, South Carolina in the year 2021 that know that we had this dispute. Like anyway, and that's the things I think about. And so in the midst of this, here's what's going on. There's two issues that's facing them. Number one, there's persecution and then that's external. And, the, and one of the reasons why they're dealing, dealing with persecution is they are this Roman colony and they have been settled by the Romans. And what they did, what Caesar did, is he took all of his ex-military and he put them in Philippi. So this is, you can imagine, they've got Caesar bumper stickers on their camels. Like it's very nationalistic. And they believe this phrase, Caesar is Lord. What are Christians now beginning to say? Jesus is Lord. And they're talking about a different kingdom and a different citizenship, and yet you can see why there's persecution and conflict as a result of that. But then there's this internal disunity that Paul comes back and deal with, deals with. So the first thing that he talks about is the mark or the goal of their unity is unity. Unity is the mark. Unity is the goal. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So if you're looking at this, there's one command in this, and it is make my joy complete. That's the command. That's what Paul is asking to do. And if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, you go, that's an odd thing. Because so many things are happening in the book of Philippians that ought to be like creating consternation for Paul, but he's not discouraged. Hey, they put me in prison. That's cool. Because you know what? A lot of the folks that are tied to me, they have to hear the gospel for six-hour shifts every day. And a lot of them have come to know Christ. And by the way, at the end, I'll kind of sneak in in chapter four, Caesar's household tells you hello. How is it that Caesar's household, because these guards are Caesar's guards. That's who's guarding Paul. And Paul goes, so, you know, in the midst of the imprisonment, I rejoice. I'm not real thankful for the condition I'm in, but God's using it. Oh, and there's some people, they come in and they're preaching the gospel with false motives just to kind of get me in deeper trouble with the Romans. But you know what? Even though the messenger's flawed, the message isn't, and the gospel's saving people. And so I'm cool with that. I'm rejoicing for that. In the midst of suffering after suffering after suffering, Paul's going, in the midst of this, I rejoice. He gets to Philippians 4, 4, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But there's one joy gap in Paul's life. In the whole book of Philippians, there's one place where he goes, Make my joy complete. In other words, here's the joy level I want to experience and here's the joy level I am experiencing. I need you to fill that up. Would you make that complete by beginning to work together? It's robbed a lot of us of joy this last year or so. Over the midst of COVID, political infighting, masks, no masks, all of these things have created a culture of division. And uh, recently I was in Austin, Texas with a group of pastors around the country and they asked me to do a little talk that I'd written on six things that I learned about COVID and uh, six lessons. And one of the things, lesson number one, I'll share with you. I won't give you all six. Lesson number one is this. As a pastor or as a leader in the church, you can please some of the people some of the time, 
but not right now. <laughs> right? Like you just can't. And in the midst of this leading, you go, why are people upset? Well, as a pastor at Crossroads, let me tell you why people are upset with me. They're upset with me because I said too much about race. And there's some people who are mad because I didn't say enough about race. And there's some people that are mad because I said too much about politics. And there's some people I didn't say enough about politics. And there's some people who are mad because they got a mask. And I wore a mask, or I didn't wear a mask, or I wore a mask backwards. But I, got, I don't know what the issue is. You name it, everybody's upset and angry about something. I read a Facebook post a couple weeks ago and somebody on there, and I know this dude, and I know the church he goes to, and these leaders, and they love Jesus, and he posts and he just kind of lights them up and just says, man, you know, I really miss like the good old days and this good church that I used to go to in this other place. And the pastor of that church reads it and just types the word ouch in reply. I had a different reply that I actually ended up having to delete. <laughs> I do that a lot. Like, I just, you type it and you're like, nah. It's not that I'm scared. It's just like I don't have the time to deal with your whining, right? Like you're going to whine about it and I'm going to have to say I'm sorry. I don't want to do it, so I just delete it. Well, here's what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say is, awesome point. Let's you and I switch seats for a year. Since you've got all the answers and you know exactly what needs to happen and what we could do better as leaders, and why don't we just switch seats? I'd love it. I'd love it. Nothing would suit me more. All your elders right now are just going, they're not going to do it like out loud, but inside going, amen. <laughs> Be careful, Randy. I think you said that out loud. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm kidding. Here's the thing that we begin to understand. It's easier to judge and divide than it is to understand and unite. It's easier to take the moral high ground, at least in our mind, to take this high ground and then just pontificate from up on our ledge of what leaders should be doing and this kind of thing. Here's a note for you about leaders. Leaders have their own junk. I don't know if you knew that. We've got kids that are jacked up that we're trying to figure out. We've got our own life. We don't know what to do about masks either. Nobody's ever prepared us for that. By the way, our governor's not helping us. The governor's like, pandemic, what pandemic? This is the Wild West. Like, and you go, man, that's helpful. Listen, as a church leader, I was like, I just wish you'd tell us what to do so we could hide behind it, right? Like, if you said it, we could just go, well, the governor said, but we haven't had that, and so we've had to navigate on our own. And for some of you, we've not navigated that well. Here's the thing I can tell you. None of us as leaders are going, you know what? Let's be as irresponsible as possible, and let's tick off as many people as we can. That would be awesome. Like, just be hilarious. We could, we could navigate a different route, but let's do this, right? None of us are doing that, and we find it. Listen, it's very important. Here's some questions. Could we seek to understand before being understood? Could we seek to help instead of to harm? Could we seek to get a perspective before getting peeved? Could we seek to have a conversation before condemnation? Can we begin to change our posture and attitude and have one of humility that Paul's describing in Philippians chapter 2? Because the Great Commission does not go on pause because of COVID or your political bent. The Great Commission, it's not like Jesus goes, okay, I want you to go and make disciples unless things get a little crazy and, you know, if it, you know then you can just kind of rest. No. And here's our problem. You can't pursue multiplication if you're locked into division. 
You just can't. Acts chapter 9, I come across that this week in my scripture reading plan. And it's just walking through and it says, and the church was at peace and they multiplied. Like somehow they found a way and you go, well, they didn't have all the issues. They're killing Christians, right? I think they have some issues to deal with. And yet in the midst of this, they're pursuing unity together. Uh, By the way, I expect division in the culture. I'm an old Calvinist. I believe in sin. I believe in depravity. (laughs) If I ever question it, I look in the mirror, right? And I'm like, yes, I believe in that. So I expect that in the culture. What I don't expect is I don't expect it in the church. I don't expect the church to act the same as culture. We're supposed to be uh, lights that are shining in a dark world in a crooked and perverse generation. And we have not done a good job of that as a church. As a matter of fact, I don't know that we've looked any better. And if I was a non-Christian looking in at the church, I would go, what do they have that I don't have? Like, there's nothing different. I'm not saying that all of a sudden as a church we begin bleeding into the culture and changing the culture, but the culture ought to be able to at least look at us and go, there's something different. That's weird. I know for a fact there's red and blue that go to that church, and somehow they found a way to respect one another. I know for a fact that there are people that are passionate about masks, and they're very COVID-averse, and I know that others that think it's a conspiracy theory, and yet somehow they love each other, right? Like, That ought to be what happened, and it's not. By the way, social media, uh, Matthew 18 still applies even through social media. Social media is simply your mouth expressed through your fingers. That's all it is. So one of the things we told people at our church go, your elders are going to start holding you accountable for your Facebook posts. Why? Because they're your words. If we were out in the lobby and you said those things as somebody else in the church, we'd light you up. We'd go, hey, we got to have a conversation. And so as elders, we've had to make some phone calls and just go, hey, we need to talk about this. Like what you're doing is calloused and insensitive, and we've had to have those. So be careful about what you do with social media. So if unity is the mark that creates joy, what wouldn't we need to make that happen? And he goes on in verse 3, and he tells us that humility is the means. It's the way in which you pursue the mark of unity together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to their own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Now, here's what you need to understand. The Greeks hated humility. They hated it. Matter of fact, if you were one of the barbarians that was roaming the countryside and they captured you and they civilized you and put you in servitude, like all of a sudden you were called humble. Well, yes, we have these servants. They're humble-minded. They're lowly-minded. It wasn't something that the culture pursued, right? This was something that was counter-cultural. And you go, well, who's going to use this example when it comes to counter-cultural? Jesus, right? Verse 5 through 11, uh, he begins to unpack that Christ was this example of humility. We were talking to a couple this weekend going through some marital stuff, and we were just talking about, and the husband and I were just talking about how competitive we are. I'm so competitive, this is what I tell our congregation, I go, I'm beating you at stuff you don't know we're playing, right? Like, that's it. Like, I've got this game that I'm playing in my brain. You don't know about it, but you're losing. And if by chance you begin to win, I hold the rules, I change the rules, and now, oddly enough, I'm actually winning again, right? And so there's this competitiveness, and that's one of the difficulties with humility. Humility feels like losing, doesn't it? When you go low, when you're humble, and this guy that I was talking to, and he and I were kind of, were kind of uh, 
kind of looking at this the same way. And he goes, it feels like losing. I go, but here's the thing about humility. Humility is not weakness. Humility is strength restrained for the good of another. Right? That's what humility is. It's not like I'm so weak and I don't like conflict and so just walk all over me because I'm so humble. No, Jesus has the power to go because the example we get is Jesus on the cross. He has the power. It's restrained power, right? To come right now and call every angel out of heaven on his behalf and we would be crushed. We would have been annihilated. And so it wasn't weakness on his part. It was meekness. It was this restrained power that he lives in, right? His birth. Philippians 2, 7 said he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What about his life purpose? In Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What about his leadership style if he wrote a leadership book? John 13, 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. What about his humility in death? Philippians 2, 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We've lost the desire and the ability to display humility in the Christian culture. We think that somewhere there that Christianity is bowing up and and all of a sudden puffing out our chest and going, man, you want some of this? You're going to get some of this. And so we create the same kind of thing that we see in culture instead of having humility and going low with one another. Right? It's in all of our language. It's in all of our language. Um, so even when I'm espousing and defending truth, which I do, so here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that we don't stand for what we believe in. What I'm not saying is that we don't have opinions and we express them. But I want you to kind of look at some, uh, I'm going to give you four little ways of some things to think about in terms of how you would actually go about engaging in debate. Number one, Engage private conversations instead of public confrontations when possible. Come on, man. Have some, have some courage. Like, pony up. Pick up the phone. Go, we need to sit down and talk. Do an eyeball to eyeball. Don't you dare send a text or an email. That's weak. Like, don't do that. Like, well, let's sit down. Let's have this conversation. Right? So that's one of the first things you want to do instead of hitting back on a Facebook post. I, I saw a Facebook post from one of our members, and it, like, it didn't sit well with me. And so what I did is I gave them a Facebook post right back and let them, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> Y'all are like, what? You did what? I'm doing that, right? What do you do? You light them up? No, I didn't do that. No. What I ended up doing with this leader was going text and go, hey, could you and I have a conversation? We had a conversation that was face-to-face, and it went, a lot better, I think, than if I'd have blown him up on Facebook. Number two, discern between convictions and commandments. Now, here's the, here's the problem with that. Commandments we can't fudge on. I can't fudge on commandments just to make you feel better because it hurts your feelings. Like, I can't. Like, that's the reality. Now, I cannot be a jerk about it, but at the same time, like, there's not a place of wiggle room. The problem is some of you think that your convictions are commandments, and they aren't. Some of you think that your opinion is gospel and it's not. Like, you're just, you're wrong on some stuff. So you want me to prove it to you? How many of you think a little bit differently about the world and even about scripture or gospel truth now than you did 10 years ago? Anybody think a little different? Yeah, hopefully, because you're learning and growing. You see some things. You're in process. You understand some things now that you didn't understand. Trust me, as an old dude, 53 I promise you, 10 years from now, 
you're going to believe some stuff a little differently than you do now. Your convictions. My commands, I still believe in the Trinity. I still believe in salvation by faith alone. I still believe God's word is inerrant and inspired. Like, I still, like that doesn't change, right? It's not like those things shift. But my ideas about how some of my faith plays out, and all, they're shifting. And sometimes you become so rigid, you become so right, there's no room. There's no room for anybody else in the conversation. Number three, look to find what's right before exposing what's wrong. Begin to believe the best about one another. You've got some great leaders in this church, uh, both as elders and both as lay leaders and staff. I mean, you really have some great leaders. Could you begin to believe the best about them before engaging some of the other pieces? Understanding that your leaders are first and foremost, they're human and they're flawed and they make mistakes. Like, that's the reality. Like, as a leader at Crossroads, I wish people would see that. I told my wife recently, I go, when somebody sends me an email or a text and says, I'd like to meet, I wince. Like inside, I'm like, they're either leaving, which is odd because most people just roll out and they're like, peace out. We're big enough to where you think that's socially acceptable, right? Or it's, I got a bone to pick with you. I can't tell you the last time, hey, I'd like to have lunch with you. I just wanted to encourage you. You're doing awesome. I would be like, what do you want? Like, there's some, there's some angle on this thing. Like, I don't know what this is. Like, begin to, to uh, believe the best about your leaders and look for what's right before exposing what's wrong. Number four, ask questions before making accusations. It always goes better. I know you think it would be helpful for me just to kind of land blast you and then wait and see how you respond to it. But maybe if you start by asking questions, help me to understand this decision. Help me to understand what you did when you posted this on Facebook. Maybe I don't, because we all have junk, right? We all have our own background. We only all have our own story, our own history, our own experiences, our own hurt, our own pain. And some of the times what we do, unbeknownst to ourselves, and we're not trying to be ugly, we take that pain and we then extrapolate it onto other people. We project it, right? And so I begin to think your motive is bad because I had this situation in the past where their motive. I'm not smart enough in the time, in the, in the moment to go, let me see. I think what I'm doing is based on that negative past experience, I think what I'm doing is I'm projecting. I'm not that smart. But when you ask me a question about it and all of a sudden I step, it gives me room. Give people room. When you're making an accusation, most people, nine out of ten people, begin by defending themselves. It's usually not a real healthy conversation. And so you look and you go, I get that unity is the mark. I understand that. And humility is the means. But how would I be humble? Because every time I think I'm humble, I become proud about being humble. And now I've lost it. Like, how would I do that? Well, we're actually going to go back and pick up verse 1 because Jesus is the motivation. Number one, it's almost, um, I know Paul's not doing this, but, but listen to the tone of this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. In, in other words, if, have you gotten any comfort and encouragement by Jesus? Have you received any of that? Because only when you receive that comfort and that kind of uh, affection can you, can you be able to extend that to other people. If you've not received that, you're not going to be able to extend it. And so the whole motivation underneath it, Paul starts with, is therefore. 
the if then is also uh, translated therefore in some of your translations. And he's referring back to chapter 1, verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. What is this manner worthy? Because all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, we want to conduct ourselves deep down in this way that's worthy. It says, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. This is 300. This is shield on shield. This is lot. This is what I got into ministry for. I was a corporate banker. Like, that's what I, I didn't get this call into ministry that like all the cool pastors did. I just went, man, God's called us from something, from sin, from death, to what? To his mission. And he's called us to a group of people and we're called to lock arms. I might not like you, but I love you and I'm finding a way to do this together. Why? Because you and I are in a battle together and we're not the ones fighting each other. There is an enemy, but we're not it. The other churches are not it. Right? There's an enemy that's coming around and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's prowling like a lion. And you better start locking shields instead of fighting one another. I don't mind getting punched in the nose, but I don't want to get stabbed in the back. Right? Like somewhere, lock shields. Who wants to lock shields? And I look at Crossroads and I just told him, and I say the same for Midlands. Like, who's in this thing? Who's in this? Who wants to lock their shield and go, hoorah, let's go get this. I got you. I ain't going nowhere. I don't care what pushes against me. I don't care how many times you and I have to sit down. I don't care what we have to hash out. I'm going nowhere. I'm standing my ground. I'm going to fight this thing. Paul goes, you know what? If there's any encouragement from Christ, that's what it would look like. And he goes through the whole book is about Christ. People will say this is the book about joy. That's 16 times. But 61 times this phrase in Christ or of Christ or from Christ. It's not about joy. It's about Christ. When we look to him, when he's high and lifted up, when we look to Christ, guess what? That's when you'll have joy. That's when you'll have humility. That's when you'll have peace. That's when you'll be able to endure through suffering. That's whenever you'll be able to lock arms. It's when you look to Christ, he's high and lifted up. He's going to increase and I'm going to decrease. Is there any comfort, any encouragement from the gospel? If so, live like it. Live like it. Live humble toward one another. And he goes through just a whole list, and I won't go through it. You can look that up on your own. So what do we do? How would we apply this? Let me give you three little applications, and we'll close. Number one, own your stuff without needing to collect rent from others. Own your stuff without needing to collect rent from others. That looks like this. I go and I tell you I'm sorry. Now, secretly, I'm hoping you would say you're sorry too because that's the way this exchange works. But when I own my own junk without needing to collect rent, I don't need that. Why? Because my comfort, my encouragement comes from Christ, not from your apology. And so i got to live as, for me, as, as, as I have the ability, I'm going to live at peace with all men. Secondly, realize the narrative I'm rehearsing is my perspective, but not perfect. So if we're not careful, what happens is we, we uh, rehearse our narrative. This is what happens in my marriage. This is what happened in this conflict, and here's my perspective. Here's what's happened, and I'm a defense attorney, so I need to mull this around because I can't leave any leaks in my argument or else... And now all of a sudden, I've practiced it so many times. Here's what happened, and here's the solution. Here's how she needs to be nicer to me. Like, and so I've got this whole thing. Now when we have a conversation, there's no room for anything she has to say. 
Because the only thing I can have in my mind is my own narrative. I've created my narrative of the way the situation went down and what she needs to do to remedy that. You know how that works out for me? Like All the husbands are going, no, no, not very well. It doesn't go very well. It doesn't go very well. So realize that your narrative that you're rehearsing is your perspective, but it's not perfect. It's not gospel. Number three, put away your ladder before someone gets hurt. What do you mean put away your ladder? Quit trying to climb the high ground on everybody. Quit trying to put yourself above. You see things. You have this insight. You have this wisdom. And, uh, you know, as 50-something-year-olds, we're so thankful for the 20-something-year-olds that see all the stuff we never saw. (laughs) Really? I've got one in our church, and so um, this was a text that I wrote back to him, and he's a great guy, and we've been dialoguing about some stuff. And I said, I understand your critique of the church, but I don't agree with the solution. It puts young evangelicals as judge and jury over the church as if they're the only ones that desire the pure church. Now they are left without older godly leadership that genuinely wants the same reforms and changes that they desire. Only now those leaders are left with less people that get it and are helping to usher in that reform. The church needs these young leaders to find healthy churches that want change and roll up their sleeves to help them. The bride is still the bride. I can't opt out just because she wears a dress I don't like or she gets hard to live with. I believe we're called to fight for the bride. Divorce is not an option. This mindset has been devastating to us as leaders. We grieve this shift for the blow it has dealt to our leadership, and we are concerned about the folks that have decided to go it on their own without the wisdom, leadership, or blessing of the older generation. It feels like more of a cultural reaction than a biblical one to me. Younger generation, this is for you. Stay teachable. Stay humble. For some of you that are prophetic and gifting, it's going to be especially hard because the prophet sees the ideal. The problem is we have to translate it for the real, and there will always be a gap, and young leaders are always impatient for that. Extend some patience and some grace to your leaders. Humility is so important. Can you just close your eyes and just let me read some scripture over you? Just close your eyes and let these, let these words wash over your heart and soul. God speaks in Isaiah 66 and he says, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. James says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Jesus says in Matthew 11, the only place in Scripture where it defines Jesus' heart, take my yoke upon you, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Father, I thank you for Midlands Church I thank you for your broader church in Columbia. And we just come before you and just confess that it's been a hard season. We've been confused. We've been hurt. We've been disappointed. We've been angry, if we're honest. And a lot of times, we haven't known where to direct it, and we've directed it at one another. Father, forgive us. I've done that. I'm so sorry. So sorry. God, I've just gotten angry at the sheep for biting And that's what sheep do. 
Even when you're trying to do your best, you get bit, you get kicked. And so, Father, would you restore the unity of your bride? We don't have to create the unity. You tell us in Ephesians that we just have to maintain it. It's just been a difficult season to do that. So, Father, would you walk us through that? Father, place us today where a phone call needs to be made, where repentance needs to happen. God, would you, through your kindness, lead us to repentance? Help us to take a different tone with each other, an encouraging tone, an uplifting tone to one another. Not that we can't deal with differences or conflicts or things we need to talk about. God, all of those are fair game. But I pray that underneath it that our heart and our attitude would be one that's spirit-led instead of one that's, that is being inspired and moved by the flesh. So, Father, we can't do that without you. We don't want to do that without you. Would you lead us? We pray in the name of Jesus, our humble Savior. Amen.